0: All right, go ahead, get your Bibles out. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. For him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another As as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I have to confess to you, I had a, a bit of a A gut punch from the Lord this week as I prepared this passage. Bold, biblical, sacrificial, Christ-like love for the least of these is a defining characteristic of a regular Christian. The question I want to address today is simply this. Is bold, biblical, sacrificial, Christ-like love what you are known for? Simple question. The text is pretty clear. I'm gonna walk through the text. I'm gonna teach the text. The text doesn't need that much teaching because Jesus is very clear about what he's saying. The question is this Is bold, biblical, sacrificial, Christ like love true of you, Christian? Today we continue through a sermon series that we began last week called No Place Left. And I'll tell you, I had a good time last Sunday preaching at the beginning of this series as we looked at what it means to be an ambassador for Christ and to carry the vision of this church, which in some ways is the same vision every church on the planet has. That We want to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to all peoples until there's no place left. We want to saturate the world, particularly our neighborhoods around us, with the gospel. We want people to meet Jesus and have their life changed. And we talked about that there's four key components in our mission statement. Our mission statement is to make disciples, equip the saints, send them out, and spread them far and wide. And last week, we kind of gave an overview of what that means to be a church. When, when you come into this place, what can you expect of us? And what do we expect of you? When you step into here, what are you after? What are you trying to get done as you invest in the lives of other people around here? That's what we talked about when we spoke of vision and mission. Today, I'm going to be focusing on the third component of that mission statement make disciples, equip the saints send them out when we talk about sending them out what we're talking about is that we send christians and that means you we send people every follower of christ that's a part of this church we're sending into the brokenness into the dark into the dirty into the dangerous into the most challenging places here in the city and around the globe and no one is playing bench on this everyone's on the field, everyone's called to the work that we are a part of here in the city of Chicago. Jesus said that we're the salt of the earth. And then he he condemned, he said, if salt has lost its saltiness, it's not good for anything. We don't wanna be saltless Christians. We wanna be salty, we wanna be present, bringing the power and the light of the gospel into the hardest places of our city. Today I wanna talk about how we do that as a church. Now, also, so you know, around the globe, this is Pro-Life Sunday, Third Sunday in January is Pro-Life Sunday, where many churches around the globe will be speaking about the topic of abortion. I will be speaking on that topic today as we get to application and what this means for us. So just prepare your hearts. I shared this a little last week. This should not be a new topic for those who are regular here at this church. I speak on that often. I always think it's helpful for me to give you a little warning before I get too far down the road. Let's look at this text, Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. What's this speaking about? This is not a parable, okay? Let's get the scene right. This is not uh, uh, just a story, almost like a fairy tale Jesus is telling. He's describing the future of reality as it actually is. He's describing future days ahead of us when Jesus Christ will return in the flesh, take his place upon a throne, and enact judgment over all humanity. This is not a parable story. This is not a metaphor. This is what is to come. He's giving us a glimpse into the certain future that awaits everybody on this planet. We believe, as Christians, that Jesus came once in the form of a servant— Around the year 0 AD, around the turn from B.C. to A.D., Jesus came and he died a death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins to allow anybody who places their faith in Jesus to have all of their sins fully forgiven. And we also believe as Christians, and we fix our hope on this, and I believe we do not talk about this enough as modern Christians. We've lost something the old Christians used to have, that Jesus will come again again in the flesh, both to rule and to reign for all eternity as he ushers in heaven on earth, but also to enact judgment. He will come again. Notice in verse 31 that the angels are with Christ in this moment. What I'd like you to do for for just a moment is actually visualize this as best as you can. You know, the, the thunder cracks when we're least expecting it. A trumpet sounds. Everyone's attention looks up and he comes. He takes his place upon the throne. Every angel in all of creation is around him. You know, we oftentimes draw your attention to the angels in the sky the night when they appeared to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth and we talk about how marvelous a sight that it would have been that was some of the angels. All the angels. They're present with Christ as he takes his seat to enact the final installment of all history. And you're there. It's coming. The Christian eagerly awaits this day with childlike anticipation. We are eager and giddy for the day when Christ returns. Why? Because we have affirmation of our faith because we know what happens for Christians on that day of judgment. We've read the text, we've studied the Bible, and we know that for everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, there is coming a well-done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the eternity that has been prepared for you from before the foundation of the earth. We are looking forward to that day. And as a Christian, you can walk in the certainty that your faith in Jesus Christ is enough, that grace has covered you by the blood of Christ, and you do not need to enter your judgment with doubt, with confusion, with uncertainty of what's gonna happen on your judgment day. No other religion on this planet makes that kind of promise to you. Jesus declares, Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we look forward to this day. This is not something to fear. This is something to eagerly anticipate. Those who are not followers of Christ dread the talk when we talk about Jesus returning. They dread it and they avoid it and they mock it. When we talk about Jesus returning in the flesh, most who are not followers of Christ oftentimes will mock the thought as if it isn't real, as if it's some kind of fairy tale mythology belief. But we know the heart and the human condition and we know why those who aren't followers of Christ would mock such a certain event that Jesus spoke of. Romans chapter two, verses 15 and 16 reads this. They show, those who are not followers of Christ, That the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That passage in Romans, what it's saying is that deep in the heart of all humanity, there is an awareness of the judgment of Christ that is to come. We can say that we don't believe it. They can say that they don't believe it. We can avoid it and run away from it and pretend like it is not coming. But woven into the fabric of what it means to be made in the image of God is an awareness that judgment comes on the other side of this life. It's coming. Our consciences bear witness to it, says Romans chapter two. We see that in this scene, all of the nations are gathered. Verse 32, what a beautiful moment that will be. You know, there are actually nations and people groups that no longer exist on this planet. Did you know know that? Because they no longer exist. Either they've been merged into other people groups or nations, or they've died off. Throughout history, there are entire people groups that no longer are represented in the current world population. You know who's going to be there before the throne? Every people group that's ever existed. Everyone. This tomorrow is also MLK Day in America. It's a day where we look at uh, the great progress that has been made in racial reconciliation and race relations uh, here in this particular country in the United States. But as Christians, we, we, we already understand the fullness of what racial reconciliation looks like. We look to themes like this where we see that Jesus is going to gather all the nations, all people groups before his glorious throne. And that the power, the effectiveness for bringing people who are different together is the gospel of Jesus Christ, where Jesus' blood, no matter who you are, covers all people's sins, all types of people from all types of different people groups, bringing them together under one banner. The Christian looks at this, and they say, that's what's to come. And I want to live in that now. And I'm trying to create that now. The ethnos, the ethnicities, will be gathered before Christ. And the judgment will be this, that those who are Christ's sheep will be placed on his right-hand side, we're told in the text. The right-hand side of judgment is the place of blessing and honor and celebration. The left-hand side was the place of cursing. This was how kings of the old day would bring their judgment around. Now imagine that moment when the king, surrounded by his angels, looks at you. If this doesn't get your blood boiling, We got some work to do, church. And he places you on his right-hand side. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. Because if it weren't for the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, I would be on his left. I know my sin. I know the ways I used to walk in. Sometimes I stay up late at night thinking about terrible things I said and, and did in my life before I knew Christ. And I was on the whole not that bad a kid. In a sense, I always thought I'm not that bad a kid. I'm not getting that much trouble. And I look back now with the awareness of the gospel and the awareness of Christ ethic, and I cringe at my former life because of what Christ has done on the right. Jesus lists six separate ideas that are communicated of the way the faithful will live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. How they will demonstrate the authenticity of their faith. Feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, Welcome the stranger. Clothe the naked. That term naked means those who have barely enough clothes to go around. Visiting the sick and visiting the prisoner. Now, if you think about what Jesus is saying here, he's looking at the fundamental needs of life, isn't he? Food, shelter, and companionship. He's getting down to the, the basics. What does it need to live a, a, to, to live a life? What, what do you need to live a life of... Of of humanity, of dignity, food, shelter, and companionship. It's interesting to note that the acts of love that are described by Jesus here are not just issues you can solve with money. The, The situation here is not put money in an issue. Every issue he lists here are issues that take sacrifice of your time, your heart, and your mental and emotional energy. Have you ever visited someone in prison? Have you ever visited the sick in the hospital? Those that have know this is not something you just quickly knock off on a checklist on your day. Is Jesus saying that these sacrificial, bold acts of love are the very works that will save us? Let's make sure we correct any misstatements here. If you read this, he says, because you did these things, I will place you on the right. That's what it seems like he might be saying, but actually that's not what the text is communicating. And we know that for a number of reasons. Number one, because of the account of all of scripture. Romans chapter 10, verse nine, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Our works cannot save us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. We can visit all the sick people in the world. We can visit every person in prison. And if we've not placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we will be separated on the left-hand side of Jesus on the day of his return and judgment. Our salvation is determined by one thing alone, placing your faith in Jesus, his death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. What's this text saying then? What Jesus is getting after here is he's saying, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then you'll start to live a life that looks like Jesus. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, one of the evidences that your faith is legitimate is that this is what you'll do with your time. This is how your heart will change on the other side of your salvation. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34 is the nail in the coffin for the question of, is Jesus preaching good works here? He says in this text, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. When was this kingdom prepared for you, Christian? At the, before the foundation of the world. <laughs> That's when he prepared the kingdom for you. Your salvation is determined by Jesus Christ, who's sovereign over all of creation. Before you were ever born, before you did anything right or wrong, Jesus knew and prepared heaven for those whom he would call his sheep. Now, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, what that will look like in your life is a transformed life, a life where you now step into difficult, dangerous places, you sacrifice your time and your love. You can think of it this way. If you've claimed you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, yet your life on the whole bears no resemblance of the bold, sacrificial love of Jesus, you might not fully understand how the gospel changes a person. Now, the last thing I want to do is pose doubt in anyone's faith, because I started just a little bit ago saying that as a Christian, you can have affirmation of your faith, security, understanding, and knowledge, and I want to stand firm on that, that proclamational truth. I want, I want you to be rest assured that if you have genuinely made Jesus Lord of your life, your works will not determine what you do. I also want to make sure that the Holy Spirit brings enough conviction in this room today that you ask yourself the hard question, and you don't let a text like this just go by and say, man, not much for me to change in my life. Are you sacrificing boldly, biblically, and courageously to step into broken people's lives with the love of the gospel as a fruit of your new relationship with God through Jesus Christ? If the answer is of the, if that is no, we got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work to do. Oh, what will we do to have Christ in this room with us right now? Think about this. Imagine if Christ came in this room right now and, and he, was, he was hungry. He was starving. He, you, know, you could see the, his, his ribcage because he just hadn't eaten food and, and he had been beaten and, and he, was, he was bloodied and, and he had been a, a, accused. You saw him earlier in the day, people mocking him as he was walking down and then he came staggering into the room in the back. What would you give as a Christian to pour love on that man? What would you give to wash his feet Wouldn't you you say, would you even permit me? Do do I dare draw a tub of water and put my hands on the feet of the king? Do I dare take a wet cloth and, and, and rub the blood from his side of his forehead? Do I dare pull up the comfiest chair we have and allow him to sit and rest himself? Jesus says, as you've done to the least of these, those ones you write off, you've done it to me. Those who have been changed by Jesus will not fail to do what is right. There is a world of opportunity to wash the feet of Jesus if we're willing to open our eyes and not turn to blind eye. I have to ask the question, why then is this kind of life so abnormal? You know, if you go back to this text, if you look at the things that condemn the... the um, the people who are on the left, the goats, if you look at the six actions that condemn them, none of these are sins of commission, of commission. It's not act, actionable things that they've done that are their judgment, right? It's not that they murdered and stole and, and all these you know actual active things you can do. They're all sins of omission. It's what they failed to do. They didn't visit the sick. They didn't clothe the... The naked, or feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty. Why don't we live into this? Why are Christians so uh, gather in our comfy, cozy gathering place and then leave and go to our own personal comfy, cozy gathering place and have almost no time for the basics of Christianity? Why is it? Well, this is a heart issue. Maybe let me highlight two, two issues. Number one, I think we've been lulled to sleep by lives of comfort and distraction. I think we've been lulled to sleep. I think Satan loves the amount of technology he's put in our hands. I think Satan loves that there are literally 100,000 different shows you can choose to watch between Netflix, Disney Plus, and Hulu. There's no end You can spend your life watching great TV, and what's happening is it's lulling us to sleep and so that we have no time. Our minds are filled with everything but the Word of Christ. Our hearts are reflecting on on the latest drama we've watched, on the latest tweet we saw, on who's posting what vacation they're on on Facebook, and it's like we're on a train. You ever ride the Metra out to the suburbs? That thing, I miss my train stop half the time because you're just gently being lulled to sleep on the train like this. I have to set an alarm when I'm on the train so it wakes me up five minutes before I get there. And what Satan's doing right now is he's distracting us to such a great degree that we're literally on a train going to hell just being lulled to sleep. A little serious, right? There's a judgment coming and the lulling to sleep Apparently is not permissible. Today is a serious day. I preach a lot of different types of sermons. I try, to, I try to get to all the different nooks and crannies of the human soul. And some days, I gotta pound a table. And usually on the days I'm pounding the table, it's because I've been pounding my own heart throughout the week, asking, is this true of me? Here's what I know is true of me. Sometimes I have the tendency to rely on the ways I've done this in the past and not the ways I'm doing it now. It's like I've chalked up my my points. I know what I've done in the past. I'm good for a while. I can take the easy train. That's not this text. It's not what Jesus taught. We're being lulled to sleep. Second, I believe many Christians have simply never been told that to be a Christian will cost you something. I think we preached com- comfy, cozy Christianity for the last five decades, and we've made a bunch of cowardice Christians. And and Christians are courageous. It's our history. Christians are bold. We form nations. We remove tyrannies. We ended slavery. We ended infant exposure. We developed hospitals. We developed education systems. We created the justice system, as it is known today, innocent until proven guilty. Thank you. Christianity offered that. We change cultures. Anywhere Christianity goes, you see light go. Anywhere where Christianity is cut off, literally those nations are dark. You ever see a map of the earth at nighttime? Where Christianity is, light. Christianity isn't, dark. Dark. This is the history of Christianity. We step into brokenness with the love and the light of the gospel. Okay. That's the text. Shift. Application. At Park, we we know that no church can do all things. There's too many things to do. There's too much brokenness out there. Uh, We're dependent on each other. Last week, I shared the language we talk about at Park Community Church is that we're a family of interdependent churches. And we celebrate the fact that as a church in the city, we have many different ministries doing many different amazing work, stepping into incredibly different broken places. I think of our North Rogers Park location where where they meet is literally right on a gang line where a number of the original people that were coming to the church, they couldn't get to church on a Sunday morning and so they had to open another location so that those who were on one side of the gang line would not have to cross the gang line to come to church on a Sunday morning. And, and so we love the work that North Rogers Park is doing, ministering to young men and women who are in gangs. Incredible work. We support them. Oftentimes we'll send our folks up there to go minister to them. It's not the work we're particularly doing here at Park South Loop in the sense of communally, where are we, where are we getting after this? That's not necessarily what we're doing here. Many of you are doing that work. It's amazing. But we celebrate as a family that work's being done. Our, our church up in Forest Glen is right near one of the major headquarters in the Midwest for where refugees fleeing persecution from other countries are being dropped off. And our Forest Glen location has a wonderful ministry with World Relief ministering to refugee families. Right now, by the way, there is a young 16-year-old boy who needs a place to live. Refugee, his parents are, over, who are overseas. I got an email yesterday. I need someone to house him. He's an orphan at the moment. He can stay in the country if he has a place to live. You don't have to be certified as a foster parent to do it because it's coming through world relief. Meet me after church if you want to take him in. I love that they're meeting the needs of refugees. I love that. We support them. It's not the thing that we, we prioritize here just because we can't do everything, but we celebrate that work that's getting done. Our church up on Devon Avenue is reaching imams, those are uh, religious leaders in mosques, and reaching many Hindus on Devon Avenue. They have a completely multicultural service where they're doing English lessons on, uh, throughout the week almost every day, literally giving English lessons to Muslim clerics in the neighborhood. Pretty cool. It's incredible. We support that work. We come alongside it. We can't do everything, but we're a family of interdependent churches, and we celebrate that work, and we try to share those stories where we can. So what are we getting after here at this church? If you're a part of Park South Loop, you're a part of all of that, but I also need you to know the things we're getting after. There are four key issues that drive how we love the least of these communally. Now, all of you have different ways to do this independently. I love that. You're stepping into broken places. There are four key issues we get after. And they're intentional. I'm going to walk through why they're intentional in a moment. They are fatherlessness, abortion, education, and homelessness. Let me go through the list again fatherlessness, abortion, education, and homelessness. Why those issues? I believe if you trace the root cause of the issues in Chicago. All of them. They trace to those four issues. I think that they can be boiled down to those four issues. That doesn't mean that the other issues are not important in some way. There are key issues. There are core issues. There are vital issues. But when we look at the city of Chicago, we see neighborhoods that are literally divided on racial lines across the city. Oftentimes, uh, socioeconomic lines, neighborhoods literally that you have, you have... Access to resources, net, net worth, access to people and job opportunities on this side of the street. Absolute no access to any of that on this side of the street. How do we live in that world? Why do we live in that world? Core issues at play here. Fatherlessness, abortion, education, homelessness. We're getting after the core issues as best as we can. People oftentimes will ask me as a pastor, what are we doing about issues of race? I'm bringing this up because MLK Day is tomorrow. I want to make sure I speak about this. What are we doing about issues of race? And what I'll tell them oftentimes is our whole church is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is winning for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language, and we step into the core issues. We don't just talk about it. We don't just post about it we're stepping into the fundamental issues that are causing the issues that we're talking about today. Fatherlessness, abortion, education, and homelessness. Now, Homelessness, you heard a little bit about what we're doing. I'm not gonna talk too much about that anymore today because there's an opportunity for you to serve literally when you walk out today. Bread of Life Ministries, our core ministry. Education, next week, I have Sean Proctor from GRIP. Many of you know that man. GRIP is an amazing after-school tutoring and sports program in the city that we partner with them to to do incredible work with education here in the city of Chicago. I'm not gonna focus on education today. It's a core issue. I'll try to give a whole sermon on that someday, Okay. We're going to focus on the other two, fatherlessness and abortion. Fatherlessness. There's a book titled Father, Absence, and Youth Incarceration. We learn from that book that boys who are fatherless from birth are three to four times more likely to go to jail as peers from intact families. In that book, you go on to learn that fatherlessness impacts the rate of drug abuse, gang activity, dropping out of school, developing poor friendships, remaining in poverty, remaining in poverty, and ultimately early death. Now, biblically. We can understand that's true. We understand that the the family is the foundational building block of society. God's way of doing things, a father and a mother over their children provides the the basis for building these things. Now, let me say a quick word to our single mothers in the room. I have shared with you before and I have preached from this pulpit to our single mothers and we know we have many of you in this room. Not only do we love you, not only do I think you are amazing in the work you're doing, my wife and I oftentimes will be putting the kids down and coming up to rest and trying to take care of more chores. And we're thinking of the single mothers in our, in our church who are doing all of it with only one in the house. Amazing. Lean into your church. We love you. We want to come around you. But we do need to talk about the issues of fatherlessness and how they impact our city. Fatherlessness impacts, for a long list of historic reasons, low-income neighborhoods and areas of our country more than middle and upper-income neighborhoods. And so when you look at who is impacted by the issue of fatherlessness, it's particularly low-income neighborhoods in our city. And so we want to be very consistent. We want to step into where are the issues taking place. How have we done this? Well, we try to do it comprehensively. We are passionate about adoption. We are passionate about foster care, and we are passionate about safe families. Not only those who are actually doing the work of becoming adoptive parents, but as a whole church and a network supporting those people, which means everyone has a role to play. My wife and I adopted two young girls through Chicago's foster care system. And we can tell you, we understand, and we know that this is a difficult journey to become foster parents. It's a difficult journey to become adoptive parents. And it also is the thing in our life that has most clearly given us an image of the gospel and firmed our marriage up in ways that we didn't even know we needed to be firmed up in. Because when you step into this type of ministry as a family, you're inviting gospel power into your life. Foster care, adoption, being a safe family, a short-term foster care essentially we developed a while ago an adoption fund. Now adoption, just so you know, if you, go, if you don't go through the foster care system, if you adopt a child, if that's what something you're looking to do, it can cost between 40 and 65,000 dollars. Everyone should go, "What?" Right? That's, that's way too much money for that. And that limits a number of really faithful families that would love to do this from being able to step into the historic place that Christians have stood in as adoptive parents because it's too financially expensive. So what we did is we took about $100,000 of our surplus money three years ago here at Park South Loop. We, took, we, took, we set it aside, and we created an adoption fund. And members of Park Community Church who have been a member for at least a year, this stops people from abusing it, becoming a member just for the money, so you have to be a member for at least one year, can get up to $20,000 from this church towards your adoption, my wife oversees the fund. We've given away tens of thousands of dollars to help it, children get adopted. <laughs> Is that incredible? Not just here at Park South Loop, but across the entire city. Children getting adopted. Regularly, we have folks around our dinner table, and many of you would do as well, asking questions: How do I step into being a foster parent? What does adoption look like? What are the things I have to think about? I'm not sure if we're ready. Do we do it after we've had our own kids, or after we've had our our own kid, or before or after we've had our own? All the questions, regular conversations as you're navigating this and stepping into this place. I want to remind you of something. I got to be careful on my time here. Uh, Historically, in the world, there was a, there was a um, a practice that was known as infant exposure. I've shared this with you before. Infant exposure was if you didn't want a child in the old Roman days, you could give birth to the child and then cast the child in the in the streets and in the gutters and the alleys. And you'd be walking to work, right? You'd walk outside, and there'd be a baby dying on the side of the road. That was just the Roman Empire. It was called infant exposure. Different schools of philosophy had different feelings on it, but on the whole, it was largely accepted. going to get to abortion in just a moment. On the whole, it was largely accepted. Do you know why infant exposure came to a screeching halt? Because Christians just stepped in and took them into their home as their own and adopted them. Christians changed the world. They changed the world by adopting children. Why? Well, because the gospel is that you've been adopted by Christ. Jesus did what you could never do. You were cut off from God the heavenly father. And then Jesus died on the cross so you could have your sins forgiven. And when you placed your faith in Jesus, the biblical text says you've been adopted into God's family. Jesus is the rightful son. He is the firstborn son. And now you've been embraced into the family as if you were a firstborn son, fully heirs of the king of kings. When we adopted our children, you know, it's amazing. I didn't know this was gonna happen. They get new birth certificates. I don't know if you know this. And in the line, this, this chokes me up. I keep, I, when I wear my suit, I keep their adoption papers in my, in my suit pocket over my heart. I remember this all the time. In, in their birth certificate, uh, the line where it says, who is their birth mother and birth father? You know whose name is there for my twins? My wife and I. You, you, you change history. Total new birth certificate. See, that's what Jesus has done for you. He gave you a whole new history. you got a new father. And then he said, if it's true of you, go love the least of these, the way I've loved you. Fatherlessness. Second issue I want to talk about is abortion. We're going to spend a few extra minutes here, so bear with me as we go through this. If you're listening to this and you're cringing at a pastor talking about abortion, I want you to know that we talk about this topic regularly at this church and unashamedly. If you're in here or you're listening to this online and you have an unplanned pregnancy, and you're scared and not sure what to do, I want you to know that this is a place where you can come and get loved incredibly. We will help you. We will take you to places we have amazing partnerships to get uh, prenatal help to get um, what's it called what do you see an ultrasound. We have partners who are incredible at this work, and we have an incredible adoption ministry. We will adopt your baby. See, see, that's what it means. We don't just want to say what we're against. We are against abortion for reasons I'll go over. But what we're for is for doing it God's way. We're for adoption. And so please hear this. If that's you in this room today, we have a number of women over the years who have, are a part of our church now, who have been a part of our church and who no longer are, but are part of our network, who have had abortions in the years, over the years, and have since come forward and shared with me, I want to be a help to other women in that place. We are a place of resources. We will help you. Don't do that alone. Why is abortion a key issue? Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 to 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Abortion is taking the life of the most vulnerable among us. It's taking the life of those in the womb. And I believe that right now in our country, there is no greater injustice happening under our noses than abortion. It's number one. It's top of the list. America is an elite class of countries, along with China and North Korea, for our abortion policies. I don't, I don't know if you know what that means. I don't know if you cringe at this to the degree that we should. The, the elite class of countries we're in is with China and North Korea in terms of our abortion policies. Not only our abortion policies, but I'd say we go further. In fact, I put us in an elite class of our own because what happens is every time that we uh, progress with progressive policy and we uh, enlargen our abortion policies like Illinois did a few years ago when we made it the most abortion-friendly state in the entire country, uh, allowing women to have abortions up through the third term for any reason, including emotional harm, just means it's going to make me sad. In third term, you can get an abortion. The reason we do that and then celebrate when that law is passed, roomfuls of people celebrating. Why is that happening? It's because we are a culture that has taken our eyes off the word of God, and we have forgotten about God's sense of justice, and we're trying to rewrite justice. The Bible declares unashamedly that life begins in the womb, and that Christians are to stand for the most vulnerable among us and be a voice for them. It's what we have always done in history, and we will not stop now. Not only does the Bible affirm this, but all science affirms this. When Roe v. Wade was passed, we did not know all that much about what was going on in the womb. A lot of decades have passed since Roe v. Wade, and there is now no excuse for not knowing what's going on in the womb. If you're watching the, the Dobbs case that's going to the Supreme Court right now where Roe v. Wade might be overturned, there was a moment in the, in the opening oral arguments where Justice Sotomayor asked the most ridiculous question that I think has ever been asked in the Supreme Court before. She said, what new evidence has been brought forth to show about what's taking place in the womb? For a sitting Supreme Court justice, that indicates to me that she had never read even one of the thousands of peer-reviewed journals on the, on the topic. The attorney who was giving the opening arguments began to list off in that Supreme Court case the issues. Well, we know that children in the womb can feel pain now. We know that they can store emotions and log memories. As soon as he got through the first three, she cut him off and would not let him continue. See, this is what happens. The culture around us does not want to talk about reality. But the reality is this, as one article put it. The conclusion that human life begins at sperm-egg fusion is uncontested, objective, based on the universally accepted scientific method of distinguishing different cell types from each other, and on ample scientific evidence, thousands of independent peer-reviewed publications. Moreover, it is entirely independent of any specific ethical, moral, political, or religious views of human life or of the human embryo. So why do Christians step into this? It is not because we're politically driven, right? We're not Christians who are just solely camped out in a single party and we're just lodged with politics, which whenever I preach on abortion, I'll have a handful of emails saying, why are you stepping into politics? I'll tell you why. Because politics is downstream of morality and God determines morality. And so when politics gets out of whack from God's sense of justice, Christians need to step in and set the record straight. Because we have the opportunity to do that in this country. It's pretty incredible. Abortion's a big issue. We're living in a culture and a society that is trying and attempting to redefine the term justice. If you look out, there are calls for justice all around. Only open your eyes to the last two years. Calls for justice all around us. Some of those calls for justice are in line. If you trace them back, you can see that you can trace that back to biblical definitions of justice. And where that happens, Christians can come alongside those calls for justice and say, yes, we see that in Scripture. We believe that that is an accurate portrayal of what justice is. Other calls for justice happening in our country are complete redefinitions of what justice is, apart from the biblical definition. This is one of the reasons I don't like the word social justice. That term I don't think is helpful because what in, in that category, social justice, is lumped some things that Christians would say, yeah, I can trace that back to the Bible. And other things that Christians go, that's the opposite of justice, right? Like when we call the right for a woman to go have an abortion justice. That's the opposite of biblical justice. But what happens is when we use the term social justice, it encapsulates all of this, and we're not clear with the watching world, which is why I like to use the term biblical justice when we speak on the term justice. What is biblical justice about? Now, how do we do this? What does it mean to be be proactive about this topic? We have four things we're trying to do in this church on the topic of abortion. Number one, education. This sermon. I put out resources. I write on this. uh, I talk about it regularly on a podcast that I do. I talk about world issues that are going on, and abortion is a common topic on that. I'm trying to educate as best as I can. And in education, part of it is emboldening. I think that many Christians, again, have been lulled to sleep on this topic, and we don't think it's an issue we need to have a voice on. But it is. Matthew 25 says so, as you've cared for the least of these. Number two, care for women with unplanned pregnancies. We have a team trying to care for and actually already have been caring for women with unplanned pregnancies. So we go, and when a woman comes in and is scared and in need of help, we have a whole team, and we want to be a church that this becomes a family to that woman and their children become cared for. Number three, we go to abortion clinics. I was just out there on Friday, and I'll tell you, that is some pretty intense work. We go, we'll have signs. We'll try to pray constantly over the building. Many times we're out there, we have many people driving by honking, saying, thank you for being here, thank you. If you've never done that, I invite you to come join us. We'll have women change their decision on what they're doing. All across the U.S., when people are present outside of abortion clinics, praying with people, having conversations with people, women will have conversations and then make a different decision. Lord willing, you get to take someone across down to Karis, our partner ministry, who will give an ultrasound and help them get biblical resources. It's an incredible ministry that's part and parcel of the whole thing. Number four, I'm praying that God would allow us to be part of changing the law in this state. (laughs) And if you think that's crazy, I think it was crazy when David went to fight Goliath. But he won. So, so I say, let's get after it. I don't know how to do it. If any of you have backgrounds in politics or law legal writing, some of you already told me you do, please help. We're slowly building a network of people. There's pretty good movement happening, actually. People all the way up to the top in this state getting connected in a network building. I think it's gonna happen. I'd like to be a part of that, and I'd like to invite you into it as well. Let me close by reminding us, of the purpose of today's sermon. My aim is to convict our hearts by preaching the word of God. My aim is to allow the words of Jesus to do their work on your hearts. I don't want you to leave today and think abortion, rah, right? I want you to think Jesus said, as you've done to the least of these, so you've done unto me. And then I want you to go home and I want you to pray on your knees. Is it true of me? And if not, send me send them out. That's the mission statement. Send them out. No more on the sidelines. No more am I going to be quiet. No more am I going to let people die under my nose. No more am I going to pretend that anti-justice is totally cool and we're just not going to talk about it. And anybody who wants to have a conversation like it's la da all good. We're quiet. We're safe. Not on my watch. I want to raise up a church of people who are courageous and conviction-filled and willing to do it with love and grace, not beating people over the heads, but as Peter says, with gentleness, with respect, with Christ-like love and conviction, stepping into the broken places. Will you go with me? Let's pray. Father, help us with this incredible work you've given us. It's too big for us. It's too scary for us. And Satan is far too powerful a foe to think that we can stand against him. But God, with Christ, all things are possible. In Christ, there is strength. In Christ, there is renewal of heart. In Christ, those who have been fearful are given courage. In Christ, churches that are small, no more than a couple hundred people, can change nations and policies of states You've done it all through history. Lord, would you do it again? I pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.